Travel can help you through life's challenges if you want it to. After a painful divorce, Elizabeth Gilbert decided to travel to Italy to eat, India to pray, and to Bali, where she fell in love. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, Elizabeth Gilbert tells us what her travels taught her about the importance of life's relationships. I don't think people necessarily went out there in the world and looked for a soulmate. I think they made one. And for an intimate look at the often scandalous behavior of kings and queens, Leslie Carroll joins us with juicy stories from nine centuries of European royalty. That's the Queen Victoria that I want people to know. She was delicious. Plus, art historian William Wallace explains how noble influences in Florence helped to shape Michelangelo into one of the icons of the Renaissance. How typical of the Italians to actually begin a church before they knew how they were going to finish it. <laughs> Whether you're dealing with life's changes, looking for dirt on King Louis, or fascinated by the genius of Michelangelo, stay with us for an engaging hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we delve into royal scandals... Consider the psyche of everyone's favorite Renaissance genius and ponder how travel can mend a broken heart. Leslie Carroll sullies the reputations of nine centuries of European kings and queens. And art historian William Wallace sheds light on how 15th century Florence and his noble roots shaped Michelangelo's artistic sensibilities. And we start with a call to Elizabeth Gilbert. She wrote the popular memoir Eat, Pray, Love, which is just out as a movie seems like just about everybody in America has read Elizabeth Gilbert's bestseller, Eat, Pray, Love. It was a story she wrote a couple years ago chronicling the 12 months she spent traveling and healing after a painful divorce. Elizabeth first divided that year into three parts. First, she went to Italy to eat, then to India to pray, checking into an ashram, and then to Indonesia, where she fell in love with a Brazilian, 17 years her senior, who Elizabeth calls Felipe in the book. In her new memoir, a book called Committed. The story continues. Elizabeth Gilbert and Felipe vowed to be faithful to each other forever, but neither of them wanted to actually get married. But then the United States government stopped Felipe at the border and said the only way he could enter the United States was if Elizabeth and Felipe got married. So, Elizabeth, how did that result in this new book, Committed? Um, well, we like to joke that it was a shotgun wedding. <laughs> Uh, with the INS holding the other end of the shotgun. And um, it was quite a shock. You know, as, as you said in your introduction, we had sworn lifelong fidelity to each other but had no interest in marriage, both of us having been through painful divorces. Uh, you know, our aversion to it was so extreme that I just thought, you know, I have to solve this before we actually get married because that's no way to enter into a lifelong commitment with somebody. And that's what set me off on the story. And the other piece of it was that we actually got exiled out of the country. Well, not me, but he did, and I wanted to be with him. So I left with him, and we went and traveled through Southeast Asia for, at the time, what was an indeterminate period, uh, waiting for his permission to come back into the United States again. And I kept having these encounters with people where I was asking them about their feelings about marriage. I was sort of interviewing people wherever we went. And it just seemed like interesting material for a book because I figured I can't be the only person who has these questions and these fears and these hesitations. And, and that's what brought Committed about. So really, you made a, a study of marriage in different cultures. Did it make you feel better about the institution of marriage after all of this? It, it did, actually. You know, one thing that it did was that it took away a lot of my fear and replaced it with curiosity. And, and my experience with life is generally that anything that I find interesting becomes less frightening to me. And it's an awfully interesting topic. And then traveling through Southeast Asia and talking to people about their marriages gave me a different perspective on the whole institution as well, especially when I, I hung out in the north of Vietnam with the Hmong people and talked to a very different set of women who had very different expectations and ideas about matrimony and what it was supposed to mean in their lives. And, and that definitely took away a lot of my fear as well. When you wrote that you'd never trade lives or lifestyles with the Hmong women. I said that in the book... Um, just to be realistic, but the fact is, I'm not sure I ever envied anybody more uh, than than those women. They were they were really extraordinary, powerful, funny, charming, smart people. I, I just had such a great time being with them. Uh, but it's a little too late for me to be mom. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of the exact opposite culturally, as, as much as you can be. But it was also very reassuring for me to hear that. 
you know, this whole idea that we have in America that we've overburdened marriage with the idea that, that you have to find your soulmate and your exact match and the person that you marry has to be everything to you and, and you know, your complete partner in every way and the best lover that you're ever going to have in your life and your co-parent and your intellectual equal and your soul is in times of struggle. These women didn't see their husbands that way. Um, they, they got a lot of that comfort from the wider community, which I think is very healthy, actually, and they didn't burden somebody with the obligation of being their everything. I got that in reading your book. I thought you were going to talk about how you met your your mezzamella, that's the Italian concept for the other half of your apple, you know, the soulmate. Uh-huh. And when you talk about you and Felipe on the road, you seem like normal people who have your struggles and there's the banality of it all and uh, the stress and the joy. And maybe your whole experience in your study just gave you a more realistic approach to finding a partner in life and maybe that's the key to happiness. I think so. I really do. And I also feel like, you know, one thing that I've figured out lately is that you know, for a lot of generations, I don't think people necessarily went out there in the world and looked for a soulmate. Um, I think they made one. I think you you become soulmates with the person that you live with over decades. All the experiences that you share together and the, the triumphs and the tragedies and the heartbreaks and the disappointments and the endurance, all of this makes that person the other half of your apple. Um, and I think the mistake that a, a lot of young women make, particularly, is thinking that, that somebody should sort of rise out of a clamshell fully formed <laughs> to perfectly match you. And the more realistic, mature version of marriage is, is that you build that together over time. And here in America, we're so appalled by the notion of an arranged marriage. Mm-hmm. And in actuality, a lot of women and men who are in arranged marriages are happier married than those of us who look for somebody to sweep us off our feet and think we found it. It's true, but I, I have to caution you to, to remind you again that it's too late for any of us to have arranged marriages. <laughs> um, you know, it, we wouldn't adapt to that because it's something that, that you have to have been raised with, I think. But I am impressed by the people from cultures that do have arranged marriages, how normal they think it is. They may be modern people, but they don't necessarily buck this traditional notion that uh, you don't fall in love with your soulmate, you make it work with somebody who's logical. I think it's interesting, too. I I, I think it's really interesting. I'm also interested, though, in this idea that um, what's happening in in places like India, as as people become more modernized and more westernized, is that arranged marriage is being replaced by what anthropologists call um, expressive marriage, which is when you choose somebody based on your own emotional needs, and that divorce rates are skyrocketing, (laughs) as they did here in the West uh, around 200 years ago when we started doing that. So traditional um, American marriages would be what these anthropologists called expressive marriages? Expressive marriage. As opposed to? As opposed to community marriage, which is when you marry based on what's best for the larger ah. circle of people. Whenever you do that, you raise the divorce rates immediately. It's it's as though divorce is the tax that we pay as a society for collectively deciding to believe in love. Not to say that these other cultures don't believe in love, but to link something as essential as marriage, where everything, your fortune, your inheritance, your children, your position in society, everything is tied into that. And to, to link that on something as, as, as fragile and mysterious and ephemeral as, as mere attraction um, is something that I think most people in the world would think was kind of crazy. You know, this is <laughs> so interesting to be shocked into realizing that we may be ethnocentric about something without knowing it and closed-minded to the practicality of a different way to do things. It's kind of like, this is just wild, but, you know, our president has to be prime minister and king at the same time. And in a lot of countries, they have a prime minister and a king to do two Uh different things. And we want our partners to be our romantic sexual fantasies and our practical mates. And in a lot of countries, they're more accepting of the practical mate and then the freedom to, to play around or something like that. Well, in certain countries, of course, that means death for women. Um, you know, so, mm-hmm. so the men have that freedom, but the women don't, which is, um, I don't think, anything that any of us would envy. I also found it really interesting to discover that, well, we always hold France up as the ideal of a place where, where people have much more pragmatic ideas about um, separating sex from marriage. It turns out that the infidelity rate in, in France is about the same as it is here in the United States. And they um, consume so, more antidepressants than we do. Do they really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they read all those existentialists. That's right. Well, they've got high expectations, I think. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Elizabeth Gilbert, and uh, most of us know Elizabeth Gilbert from her classic book, Eat, Pray, Love. And today, we're talking about her new book. It's called Committed, A Skeptic Makes Peace with Marriage. It's sort of the what happened after she fell in love with a Brazilian, 17 years her senior, in Indonesia. Elizabeth, when I think about the happy ending of your year on the road, it occurs to me you married somebody... 17 years older than you and from a different culture, from Brazil. 
Now, do you think when you look at this, is that an attempt to broaden your world by breaking out of your generation and your culture? Or is the cultural and age different stuff only superficial and you found just the right guy? I think it would be naive to say that it was superficial. Uh, it's funny, I said to my 90-year-old grandfather, you know, we don't really feel the age difference between us. And he said, you will. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right now when I'm 40 and he's 58, it's not a problem. But, uh, you know, obviously as we get older, we'll feel that more. Um, as for the cultural difference, you know, my husband, he, he was born in Brazil, but he, he really is the most international person I've ever met. He left Brazil when he was 19, and he lived in Switzerland for five or six years, and then he lived in the Middle East for a long time, and then he moved to Australia for 15 years. And he, he really can sort of build a home for himself anywhere, to the point that right now when we're living in rural New Jersey, I forget that he's Brazilian. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, he's had a very picaresque life, and, and he has a sort of Zeleg-like ability to um, to become part of wherever he lives. So, so it hasn't been... I think as challenging for me as it would be um, for many people who, who marry somebody who's very attached to their culture, um, and then we would have to choose. You know, we, right. he, he's sort of equally at ease every place. Do you find that there's a little danger of falling in love with a person from another culture? I mean, I know I've got a lot of friends that have all sorts of exotic boyfriends and girlfriends, and when it comes right down to it, they end up marrying somebody from, you know, uh, Minnesota. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I think so. I mean, it, there's probably, you know, a bit of danger in anything, except for that, that you know, the fact is he's, as he constantly reminds me, not just by his um, words, but his actions, he's a creature routine. He's a kind of boring guy um, in a way that I really like. <laughs> and the weirdness of him is that he's, on one hand, and I write about this in the book, very international and very adaptable and able to live any place. And on the other hand, um, the minute he gets somewhere, settles into a routine, chooses one restaurant, that's his place. You know, mm-hmm. he, he likes things to sort of be the same. So he's he's good at being married. You mentioned after like two weeks where you live in the United States, he knows where the best breakfast is and, and just where to hang out for a beer. And it's like he's been there all his life. That's it. Although I also know that if for some reason tomorrow um, we decided to pack up and move to the Andes, he would do it without any hesitation about leaving behind anything. He doesn't have much attachment to particular places, but he's very attached to monogamy and, f- and fidelity. He keeps saying, as long as you come with me, we can build a life anyplace, which is um, a great idea, I think. <laughs> Elizabeth, in your book, Eat, Pray, Love, you talk about how the, in the Balinese culture, People like to know the context of someone's life by first asking, where are you going? And then they'd ask, where are you coming from? And the third question is often, are you married? Let me close by asking you the same questions. (laughs) I'm going to my garden. This is what I've become obsessed with. I have a home for the first time in my life, and I am a passionate gardener. So uh, that's where I'm off to. I'm coming from a lifetime of restlessness and traveling and searching. It has finally led me to my garden. And I am not only married, I have four cats and a dog and crops. <laughs> so I would say that I am, at the moment, very happily rooted in home and hearth and, and husband, and it seems to be exactly where I want to be right now. The subtitle of your book, A Skeptic Makes Peace with Marriage. Elizabeth Gilbert, I think you've done that. Thank you for writing Committed, and of course, thank you for writing Eat, Pray, Love, and best wishes with Felipe. Thank you so much. It was delightful talking to you. Elizabeth Gilbert's website is elizabethgilbert.com. Next, a juicy expose on highly sexed royals through the ages. Leslie Carroll shares tales from her research into nine centuries of kings and queens whose antics even outdo some of the escapades of our naughty politicians. We suspect you will be amused. Coming up next on Travel with Rick Steves.
anyone sightseeing their way through Europe will see castles, gardens, palaces, and jewelry of centuries of kings and queens. Through so much of its history, most of Europe was ruled by a handful of royal families. Leslie Carroll has been checking into the stories of these royal bigwigs. She joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to share some of the juicy personal stories behind royal marriages, from Eleanor of Aquitaine in the 12th century to Charles, Prince of Wales, today. Leslie, thanks for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. So now, this book of yours, you've chosen 32 different royal couples, starting with Louis yes. VII and finishing with Charles and Di. Of course, Henry VIII gets six chapters, right? Yeah, he's a perennial. He's an evergreen, and everybody loves him. So I figured I'd put in all six wives because in each of their own ways, his marriages, all of his marriages were notorious. First of all, when we think of your coverage of notorious royal marriages, they're all in Europe, right? Yes, if you count Russia as well. We, we right. visit Catherine the Great and Nicholas and Alexandra in the book as well. On what basis did you choose the, the 32 royal couples that made the cut for your book? I was trying to find a balance between what many people think are the better-known couples, such as Henry VIII and his wives and Napoleon and Josephine and Marie Antoinette and Louis XVI, and some of the marriages that were less well-known. One of my favorites, because it was just so awful, was the marriage between George Ludwig of Hanover, who became George I of England, and his first cousin, Sophia Dorothea of Zell, and they hated each other on sight, and it was a dreadful marriage that ended in divorce. But it was so much fun to write about, and it changed the kingdom. He ended up in England without a queen. There was no queen of England when George I sat on the throne because his wife was imprisoned back, ex-wife was imprisoned back in Germany. So each of the marriages that I chose in some way had an impact on the history of their own kingdom or of their own country or on a grander scale, all of Europe. Well, you know, we can think in our recent history here in the United States how sex has had uh, impact on history in the White House. Um, give me some actual examples of how love and romance and sex has shaped European history. Well, France, for example, operated under a system called Salic law, which meant that only a male heir could inherit the throne. So daughters didn't count. And I open up with the very first marriage of Eleanor of Aquitaine and her fourth cousin, Louis VII, King of France. And they were married for several years, and she gave him two daughters. And they needed a dispensation from the Pope in order to marry because they were cousins. But after all this time when she didn't give him any sons, and therefore there were no heirs directly from their bodies to the kingdom, they decided to get a divorce. And that changed the face of Europe because Louis needed a male heir for the throne, and he finally got one on his third wife. Of course, you have Henry VIII and his love affair with Anne Boleyn, which led to the creation of what we now know as the Anglican Church. Right. Everybody was Roman Catholic before then, and he was so desperate to get a divorce from Catherine of Aragon, his first wife, that he would do whatever it took, and that ultimately resulted in breaking with the Church of Rome and founding his own religion. Now, when you think about uh, royals and marriage and war, uh, it's important to remember that up until relatively modern times, there was this old regime notion that some were born to be rulers and others were born to be rulees. And at one point, four or five families essentially owned all of Europe, right? Yes, I would say so. And they had to marry carefully within their ranks. You had to marry each other. As I point out in Notorious Royal Marriages, almost every royal marriage was a political and dynastic alliance. The point was to make friends. Yeah, so you have two parallel worlds. You've got the political needs of the royal family and to marry your children into the right households. Uh, I think, who was it, Maria Theresa had, what, 16 kids? Maria Theresa had about 16 kids, and one of them was Marie Antoinette, who, of course, married into the, the Bourbon-French family, and another daughter married the King of Naples, who was a congenital idiot, but that didn't matter to Maria Theresa. Speaking of congenital idiots, weren't they all um, marrying, like, second cousins or first cousins? And was there a trend that there was a lot of, at least, minor deformities among the royals in Europe through history? Yes, that's what happened, Rick, because the gene pool got narrower and narrower. And as any ninth-grade biology teacher will tell you, inbreeding often leads to insanity. So you have first cousins marrying first cousins, and then their kids marry their first cousins, and on and on. 
The royal family in Spain was famous for their underbite, right? They all had an underbite. Yes, the Spanish bourbon underbite, yes. And if, and you, were then, the, if you were the court portraitist, you didn't want to exaggerate the underbite in the, in the royal portraits. Not much. But if you look at all of the Habsburgs, because they had wed into the, the Spanish bourbons, they've got the underbite too. Oh, do they? Well, they're related to the... To the uh, they're all they're related. All... And, and if you start looking at the Hanovers, they all have big bulging eyes. That's true. All of the Georges, one, two, three, four, and Victoria, they all have those big bulgy eyes. And that's not just some uh, artist making his own little political commentary, but that's actually how they looked. That is actually how they looked. Wow. Now, I understand there was some um, sort of incestuous gossip about the royals of Germany and England leading into World War I. What's the story there? Do you know any of that? I don't the, the cover ki- that the Kaiser, in notorious marriages. So. The, yeah, that's a little bit different than the topic of your book, but the Kaiser was related to... Uh, the Kaiser was Queen Victoria's first grandson, and she right. never liked him. And there was always tension between England and Germany. And because um, it was kind of Even like though cousins. Victoria married her kids, and they were all cousins, yeah. yeah. Even though Victoria married her, her kids into the, the German houses mm-hmm. because they were expected to marry other Protestants. And... Spain and Italy and France were all Catholic countries. So the English were running out of people to marry, so they were marrying the Germans. We're talking about the royals here. These, these royals are the kind of people who, you know, they've got everything. They, they don't ever make their own orange juice, that's for sure. Everything's done for them if they want it to be done. And they have to get married for political reasons or Protestants and Catholics or whatever. So they have a parallel world of their own personal romantic needs that's probably separated from their political sort of marriage reality. That's why they all that. had affairs. And it was, it was routine to have affairs, wasn't it? Absolutely. For the king. It was okay. Not for the queen. Okay. What was good for the gander was absolutely not good for the goose. A queen was supposed to be a well-dressed womb. And she hmm. put up and shut up with the king's various mistresses. And some kings were more discreet about them than others. But uh, Catherine of Aragon was supposed to look the other way when... Henry flaunted his passion for Anne Boleyn in front of her, but Catherine, of course, was in love with her husband and wasn't about to look the other way, not just because she loved Henry, but because she was the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain, and the alliance between Spain and England at the time was vital. So if she lost Henry, it also meant Spain lost England. Sounds like an incredible political soap opera. Unbelievable. It's political, it's sexual, it's <laughs> juicy. I write historical fiction as well, and I love making stuff up for a living as much as I enjoy writing the historical nonfiction. But I promise you, the more research you do, you don't need anybody fiction, can huh? do this. You don't need to make <laughs> this stuff up. It's unbelievable. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Leslie Carroll, and she's written a book called Notorious Royal Marriages, and it is a fascinating look at the reality of the political and romantic mixing up of Europe as Europe bungles its way through the centuries. In all of your studies, which of the monarchs, uh, kings or queens, was the the most hypersexed? Charles II. He sired either 17 or 19 royal bastards, and he never did have a legitimate child, and that in itself changed the face of Europe because his brother James II, who inherited the throne, was a Catholic. So there are political consequences of these guys. Leslie, when you're thinking about notorious royal marriages and you want to spice it into your sightseeing plans, what are some of the palaces that you went to where you can kind of envision this? Uh, How can we make it part of our sightseeing? Well, you could actually do a royal bedrooms tour if you wanted to. I have been to Buckingham Palace, Windsor Castle. You could go to Balmoral uh, last fall. When I was doing my research, I visited Versailles and Malmaison, which was Josephine's home with Napoleon. You can go to the Hofburg and Schönbrunn. In your book, you write, there's almost a palpable sadness in Malmaison, the the palace of Emperor Napoleon and, and Josephine. It's turned into a museum now. I wanted to see it the way Josephine had envisioned it when she first, she was known for beautiful gardens that she put there. The whole, Malmaison means bad house in mm. French, and nobody knows the origin of that because it was such long before Josephine bought it. But to me, it felt very much like the sad house. Of course, Napoleon famously divorced Josephine in 1810, but she got to keep Malmaison. And there was something in the air as I walked through the rooms, even though they're now set up as a museum of Napoleon, but you can see many of the famous paintings that you'd see 
Even if you trolled Wikipedia, you'd see the famous, famous portraits of Napoleon and Josephine and some of their furniture and their furnishings and the beautiful swan-shaped bed that Hmm. Josephine loved and what she died in. And I went outside afterwards. It was a very gray day. And the facade of the building is very gray. And there there was an incredible palpable sadness in the Hmm. air. And I went to look at what was left of the Rose Garden. And being late September, there really wasn't much. But I took a photograph of what I thought was a white rose. And when I came home and put the photos on the computer and enlarged it, I saw that it had little pink flecks, tiny dots all over it. And to me, it just felt like sort of a survivor of the French Revolution, almost this beautiful pure rose speckled with blood. And it became a metaphor for me of the history of France at the time. Wow, that's beautiful. Of the revolution and the terror and everything that led to the Napoleonic Empire and ultimately to his... Speckled in blood. Speckled white rose. Wow. And that's just outside of Paris, Malmaison, right? Yes, it is. It's very easy for anybody to get to, even if they don't speak French. And also just outside of Paris, of course, is Versailles. And I understand in Versailles, one wing was for the king and, and one wing was for the queen. Yes, they had their own wings, and they met in the middle on special occasions. And for the queen to come over to the king's... The king would visit the queen, and there's a marvelous story about this because Marie Antoinette and her husband, who at the time she married him, he was the Dauphin of France, which meant he was the heir to the throne. He was the grandson of Louis XV, and he became Louis XVI about four years after they got married. And Maria Theresa strongly felt that husbands and wives should share a bedroom all the time. She absolutely despised the French tradition where the husband would have to tiptoe out in the middle of the night, followed by umpteen servants, and Mm -hmm. and go to the queen's bedchamber. She thought it was terribly unnatural that Marie Antoinette and her husband were not sharing a bedroom every night. And she said, just, it's so embarrassing. Well, no wonder you're still a virgin. She would write her daughter scathing letters Uh. from Vienna telling her what she should and shouldn't be doing in the bedroom and that, that having a separate bedroom from Louis was a terrible, unnatural idea. And how, how could she possibly get an heir? And Maria Theresa had a point because, again, France was a country where only a male could rule. And if Marie Antoinette did not make a baby very quickly, and a male baby at that, and she didn't get one until uh, her second try, she could be sent home. Queens yeah. could be sent home if they did not have babies. As I said before, they were meant to be a well-dressed womb. The well-dressed womb. I, I think that's a, a, a great phrase. <laughs> By the way, I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Leslie Carroll, and Leslie's written a book called Notorious Royal Marriages. Leslie, of all the royal couples you studied, which famous royal couple do you think had true love? Who was happiest just as man and wife? There are two in my book. Uh, first, I would say Victoria and Albert, even oh, though... Yeah. It was an arranged match, and they were first cousins. It was love at second sight with them. Victoria, at first, when she met Albert, wasn't sure she wanted to marry at all, and she wasn't sure that she wanted to marry her first cousin, wasn't sure that was such a good idea, wasn't sure she'd feel for Albert. She said that she was worried that she might like him as a brother and a friend, but not as a lover. She actually said that at second glance, he came over for a second audition, so to speak, mm-hmm. and it was absolute passion. She writes in her diary, and here, one of the things I love about Queen Victoria is the young Victoria is not the dour little prude that everybody yeah, thinks I, of when I they just think can't of Victoria. Picture. She was a sexy girl. And, oh boy, she talks about their wedding night, and, and the night after, all of this is in her diaries, and, and I incorporated a lot of it into wow. my chapter in Notorious Royal Marriages. I read that only Albert could call her Vicky. Oh, that I didn't know, Yeah, but I'm not surprised. I'm sure she was not amused if they took familiarities. And we know uh, Victoria from her black outfit, and, and I think she Absolutely. set new standards in mourning after Albert, her beloved Albert, she died. She vowed to rule her empire the way Albert would have done, and all of the wow. prudishness and the priggishness came from him. Hmm. His mother ran away with a younger man when he was five years old, left the family. So that really colored his his view of women. But I want to share one lovely tidbit that's from the book and from Victoria's diaries about her passion for Albert. This is the second time he came to England to visit, and the two of them are watching a royal military parade. And she writes in her diary, she couldn't concentrate on the, the horseman parading past her because she noticed that Albert was wearing white cashmere breeches with nothing under them. Vicky said that? 
Vicky said that in her diary. That's what she was looking at, Albert's crotch, when she should have been reviewing the military parade. So that's the Queen Victoria that I want people to know from notorious royal marriages. She was delicious. The woman who inspired the, quote, Victorian age. Exactly. Amazing. The woman who, who would deny that, that any other woman had such a vulgar appendage as a leg <laughs> was uh, wrote in her diary how delighted she was the day after wow. their marriage when Albert put on her stockings for her. That's fascinating to humanize these royals. When you go to London, you can find a lot of Victoriana and a lot of history about Victoria and her love for Albert. When he died, I understand, they used to have all of those um, wrought iron railings and so on around England used to be gaily painted, and she just dictated that everything should be painted black, black uh, in sadness. Black. I didn't know what the genesis of that was, and but there's certainly all, the all black, black railings now. today. Yeah. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Leslie Carroll, who writes Notorious Royal Marriages, and Leslie has devoted a chapter to each of the 32 European royal couples that she figures is most interesting from a love and marriage and intrigue point of view. Leslie, if we're doing our traveling and we're, we're, we're dreaming up a trip and we want to splice some of these uh, ideas into our sightseeing, give us some tips on where we might go in order to uh, enjoy this slice of European history. Well, if you want to make a trip of royal bedrooms alone, I rattled off here you can have Buckingham Palace, Windsor Castle, Balmoral if they'll let you in, Versailles, Malmaison, you can go to Vienna and visit the Hofburg and Schönbrunn, you can visit Hampton Court and follow in the footsteps of the Tudor bedrooms, a Brighton pavilion, and visit where George IV would have slept. You could also, if you have a macabre bent, visit their final resting places. If you're in Paris, I'd suggest going to the Basilica of Saint-Denis, where also some coronations took place, of the French kings. If you're in England, you can visit Westminster Abbey. If they do let you in at Windsor, there are Frogmore Chapel and St. George's Chapel is where several of the British royals are buried. And if you're a big fan of Nicholas and Alexandra and the Romanoffs, you can visit the Cathedral of Saints Peter and Paul in St. Petersburg. And if it's Napoleon who's your idol, you can visit Les Invalides in Paris. And of course, at, at Les Invalides, you've got that incredible tomb just for Napoleon under the big dome surrounded yes. by his museum. Also, if you're interested in the Habsburgs, you can go to the Kaisergruft, which is the place where the emperors of uh, the Habsburg realm that's right. were all buried. Yes. And that's quite a, a beautiful place to, to check out if you like royal tombs. And you can also visit St. Paul's and Westminster Abbey. Leslie Carroll writes Notorious Royal Marriages. Leslie, thanks so much for a fascinating insight into European history. You are very welcome. There's more of our conversation with Leslie Carroll and a link to her books in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. While he wasn't a royal, Michelangelo did come from a noble family. To help us understand how this influenced his talent and his ambitions, historian William Wallace from Washington University in St. Louis joins us next. The co-author of my own book on European art history, Gene Openshaw, is also with us as we look at Michelangelo's Florence. It's next on Travel with Rick Steves. there's a rock star in art history, it's got to be Michelangelo. He's been packing him in for 500 years. Think of being a leader in a cultural explosion where the epicenter was Florence, bringing Western civilization out of the Middle Ages and into the modern world. And think of the struggles and the challenges and the complexity of that age when we've got Christian medieval thinking and modern humanism coming together, where we've got the Medicis and their elite friends up in the palaces and hungry peasants out in the streets rumbling. And in the middle of it all, Michelangelo was there, chipping away on that marble. Today we're going to talk about Michelangelo's Florence for sightseers. And I'm joined by two scholars on the topic. Professor William Wallace has written six books on Michelangelo. His latest book is Michelangelo, the Artist, the Man, and His Times. And Professor Wallace comes to us from Washington University in St. Louis, where he's a professor of art history. Professor Wallace, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
And I'm joined by Gene Openshaw, who's uh, worked with me for years as a guide. And Gene is the co-author of our guidebook, Europe 101 History and Art for Travelers. Gene, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure. Now, when we think about traveling to Florence and appreciating the age of Michelangelo, it's a challenge for us to, to kind of put ourselves back 500 years. But this was a, a heady time when, when we're coming out of the Dark Ages, and we've got this fancy, famous renaissance. But, Professor Wallace, did the guys in the street know what was going on, or was this just up in the Medici's palace? No, I think they actually really did know. it. They were living in a modern world. We trace our beginning of banking and international trade to this time, and this was a city that was flourishing and full of wealthy people, and they absolutely were confident that they were reinventing the modern world. Now, in your new book, Michelangelo, the artist, the man in his times. You talk about Michelangelo had noble roots. Did you mean genetically or because he was an insider with the Medici elites? No, because of the antiquity of his family. As is still true today, the antiquity of your family is the measure of your social prestige. And so Michelangelo was extraordinarily proud that his family was a family that he could trace his roots back 600 years Gene, as you travel in Florence, do you pick up on that at his family home? Or, or You know, Bill talks about how it's noble and long lineage, but there's little doubt that his family had fallen on somewhat harder times. Um, that's true. So yeah. in a sense, his aristocratic roots really come from the two families that he grew up in, the Buonarotis with their long lineage, but somewhat a blue-collar element, and the Medici family where he spent his teenage years living right in the Medici palace put those two together, and he definitely saw himself as an aristocrat. And if I can add one more thing, in your lead-in, you'd mentioned how Florence was the epicenter of this big Renaissance cultural phenomenon that was blossoming all over Europe. Well, the very epicenter of that in Florence was the Medici Palace. That was Michelangelo's crib when he was growing up in his Hmm. teenage years. Now, was Michelangelo, did he see himself as a champion of the common man, or was he a hired hand of the aristocracy? I think he was very much a hired hand, but of the very best and most important people in society, he ended up working for nine different popes, and these are the most powerful and the richest people in in the world. But they were just hiring his grade school buddy, weren't they? Well, in some way. Didn't he have a a playmate? When when two of the Medici, in fact, that he grows up with become pope, yes, the first Florentine pope ever then hires Michelangelo. So this is a very lucky coincidence. Isn't this an indication of what a small world it was for the educated people or the elites when uh, two of your buddies, when you're just a kid— you're just playing stickball, they become popes. Yeah, well, think of the world that he grew up in. Michelangelo, he knew Leonardo da Vinci personally. They competed in a painting contest. He was sort of the adopted son of Lorenzo the Magnificent, the most famous man in Europe. Lorenzo's own son grows up to be pope. Well, that was the guy that Michelangelo sat next to in class growing up. Uh, The pope has to battle Niccolo Machiavelli, a political radical, You know, all of these things were going on at the same time, and Michelangelo was right in the thick of it. In a very small city, I mean, we're talking about a city of about 45,000 people. Everybody knew everybody else, especially the people who were— Especially the uh, uh, capable, networked people. The higher up. High energy That's right. You know, uh, Gene Openshaw has put together this uh, wonderful spread in, i got to say, in our book, Europe 101, that's called The Class of 1500— and here, it's it's a little bit of a stretch, but you've got in the same class, in the same generation anyways, you got Christopher Columbus, Nicky Machiavelli, Al Durer, Lorenzo the Magnificent, Pope Leo X, Savonarola, Amerigo Vespucci, Erasmus, Michelangelo, Henry VIII, Leonardo da Vinci, and Martin Luther, all living in the same generation, and many of those people in the same city. Pretty impressive high school class. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and uh, like Gene said, it was a small world. Uh, these people communicated. They wrote letters. They uh, employed each other. And as travelers, we can appreciate that. Gene, if you're in Florence and you want to get a sense of this heady time, where do you go? If you want to get the background of it, you just take a basic walk through Florence. The Uffizi Courtyard, you've got statues of all of these famous people. But Michelangelo could have stood, say, right in the center of town, right in front of the Duomo, and he would have seen it practically as a museum showcasing the work of the two previous generations that practically invented the Renaissance. You'd look up, there's the dome, made by Filippo Brunelleschi, patterned on an ancient building that was an engineering feat that matched that of the ancients. He'd look on the facade of the church. There's statues by Donatello, these realistic, heroic, brooding statues that recall the the classical world and that inspired Michelangelo. He'd spin 180 degrees on his heel. He'd look at the baptistry with its bronze doors, 
uh, with these realistic scenes made by Lorenzo Ghiberti, where he practically invents the concept of creating the illusion of a three-dimensional scene on what's virtually a two-dimensional surface. Right there, you're immersed in Michelangelo's world and the world that he grew up in. You're on the cusp of something very exciting. You had these pioneers that Michelangelo, like you said, walk down the street and you'll see him. Donatello, his David, I understand, was the first freestanding male nude to be sculpted in a thousand years. That's right. He would have been locked up for indecent uh, sculpture uh, a generation before that. Donatello made that leap, and Michelangelo must have been inspired by it. You got the cathedral. It was built in Gothic times, right? And they left the hole for the spire open because they didn't have the technology to build a dome yet. Knowing that spires were old school, we're going to get Renaissance here, we're going to go classical style, and Brunelleschi, the Florentine, came along with the technical know-how to put that dome on top. How typical of the Italians to actually begin a church before they knew how they were going to finish it. They they were very confident that God would send Brunelleschi to save things. He would find Florence a perfectly recognizable place now to the time because this is one of the reasons why I think we're so attracted to the city is because it so easily evokes the time that Michelangelo, Leonardo, and Raphael were living there. And to take that notion that Gene was explaining, which is just, to me, I've never even thought of it, Gene, walking down the streets pretending you're in Michelangelo's mindset, how new and fresh and radical these innovations were. You can step into the Orsan Michele Church and you're going right back into the Middle Ages. You've got candlelit, gold leaf, pointy, lacy altarpiece, you know, with this very, very medieval sort of iconic altar and go, wow, this is medieval Christian art. And then you can step across the street or take a look at the niches in that church and you see the modern age. Yeah. And everywhere you go in Florence, really we've talked about Michelangelo growing up in the, in the cradle of the Renaissance, which certainly is true, but he also grew up in a very Christian world. And those things side by side, uh, you can see them in Florence all over, but they very much were the two poles that dominated Michelangelo's life, the Christian and the pagan Renaissance, uh, medieval humility and piety, and Renaissance confidence in humanism. Do I understand that when you think about humanism and medieval piety and, and so on, in the Middle Ages, the most noble art form was architecture because it was the house of God, and it was okay to put energy into that. And the other stuff, tapestries, windows, paintings, sculpture, embellished the house of God, so it was okay to do that too. Then in a humanist age, You can just make a fancy statue for a fancy family and put it in their fancy courtyard. But we should always remember these aren't contradictory poles. Those poles that Gene mentions are absolutely complementary. You are both being uh, observant of God by being a humanist and you're being a human by being godly. So Renaissance humanism is powered by Christian faith. It's not a repudiation of God, but it's just saying there's a modern kind of faith, and that's not to take it this superstitial bow down in church hall. You know, translating the Bible into the people's language. Uh, Martin Luther, same generation, same sort of confidence, right? We don't need the word of God in Latin to be interpreted for us. We're humanists. We can get it in our language, we can read it, and we can then as some leaders would say, chart our own path to hell. Of course, that was a little bit shocking for everybody (laughs) living in Italy to see the Bible translated up in the north. So that was radical for that (laughs) That time. That was very radical. But is it tied into this humanism where you can look at it as not an anti-religious thing, but a a new kind of religious thing? I think certainly Martin Luther was thinking that way, but it was a threat to the Catholic Church. Of course. And the Catholic Church had all of these guys by the—they had them them controlled. Yeah. And, And who excommunicated Martin Luther? It was Pope Leo X, the young man that Michelangelo grew up with in the Medici household. Okay, so when we're thinking about humanism, if I go to the academia where you find uh, Michelangelo's David standing like an altar, this is really a celebration of humanism. And no matter how many times you've seen it in books, to step into that academia museum and see the David, people just inevitably go, oh my God, it is big, it is beautiful. Amen. Amen. <laughs> and it's under a dome. It was like purpose-built. That building was built for that. Was it purpose-built? the statue to Because it works display. It does. It's a really beautiful space. The other thing we can say about it, it's really, if you think about Florence as a medieval city, the David is a large-scale Roman marble nude placed in the middle and the center of a medieval city, completely transforming its character into a modern, a modern world. Huh. 
That's an emblem for that. It is. That's indeed. a powerful statement. Very think powerful about statement. At the front door of the uh, exactly. where, where the city government Precisely. was. Precisely. And we got to remember, these were city-states back then. And very proud of their city-state independence. Which is one thing that motivated these Florentines to really do well. And the Florentines always identified with David because David, of course, is the young shepherd boy who's subjected to the much greater power of Goliath. And Florence always saw itself as a kind of small city-state against the much larger powers of Venice, Milan, and Genoa. And Genoa. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Professor William Wallace, and uh, Professor Wallace's new book is Michelangelo, the Artist, the Man, and His Times. Professor Wallace teaches uh, art history at Washington University in St. Louis, and I'm joined also by Gene Openshaw, co-author of Europe 101, History and Art for the Travelers. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Sherry's on the line in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Sherry, thanks for your call. Well, thank you for having me. I um, I was enjoying your discussion about uh, David, and he's certainly an awesome statue. And the prisoners that are in the same building, uh, escaping from the stone, are a favorite of mine. But there's a couple of things that are maybe a little lesser visited. One is the statue, which I believe is um, a self-portrait of Michelangelo called the Deposition. And it's uh, the removal of Jesus from the cross with with Nicodemus, um, as Michelangelo is Nicodemus, and that's really a very powerful statue. And uh, the other thing that I remember was the stairway at the Laurentian Library, which, which was so graceful and reminded me of a cascade of water coming down into pools at the bottom. So... Both the sculpture of um, statues and also the architectural features of Michelangelo around Florence are just amazing. I think those are both very good recommendations for the next time you go to Florence because that great statue of uh, Nicodemus and Michelangelo, he carved that actually as his own grave marker. So, indeed, this was an extremely important and powerful portrait of himself and a a sort of guarantee of his salvation on earth by carving this beautiful sculpture. And so I totally agree with you. And that stairway of the Laurentian Library, we tend to forget that Michelangelo is also an extremely important architect and that he probably had a greater effect on the history of architecture than he even did on the history of sculpture. So you're absolutely right in making those two very good recommendations. If I could uh, just make it clear for listeners, when people want to see this wonderful Michelangelo deposition or Pieta, it is in the Museo del Duomo, the Museum of the Cathedral, immediately behind the cathedral. I was thinking how some of the Michelangelo art you know, requires a reservation to see in long, long lines. There's never a line for that, and it is a very powerful piece of art that a lot of people don't even check out when they're in Florence. One of the better museums precisely for that reason. I agree. And then when we think about the, the word deposition and pieta, is that the same thing? or They're, they're close. Uh, the pieta is the moment when Mary meditates upon the body of her son, and this is technically a deposition. There are other figures, including the Mary Magdalene and the Nicodemus as well. Gene, it's interesting, this whole notion of the underappreciated value of Michelangelo's architecture. As a sightseer, how do you appreciate that? I'll touch on some of the things that Sherry talked about um, when she talks about that Laurentian library and his work as an architect. Well, that is part of the Church of San Lorenzo, this large concept where where Michelangelo was hired as an architect to decorate the facade of that church. If you go there today and you look for this facade and and what you stare at is just bare brick. It's just uh, to this day. Uh, In fact, all of the things that Sherry mentioned are part of this about 20-year period of Michelangelo's life where he worked on project after project after project and really completed very little. The Lernstrian Library, he did complete the staircase, but nothing else left so unfinished. So the staircase was one element of what should have been a glorious facade by Michelangelo. Redone, a redone entire library. And today you see the rustic brick facade kind of roughed up so that the veneer can be put onto it. Exactly, and he was hired to do the veneer, but that veneer of the, of the Church of San Lorenzo left unfinished. Um, and Why fa- was that? 
that's a it's a long story. <laughs> it's a long story. Yeah. They ran out yeah. of money. Let's yeah. say. <laughs> but was, was the <laughs> ego of some other patron that came in and, and got him sidetracked on another project? Well, let's think about all those marbles that intended for the facade. We end up seeing actually in the Medici Chapel today. A oh, lot of that, that marble stuff was is, is reused. The, Absolutely, that would have the material been is very very facade. valuable. All right. So, Sherry, that was a great comment. Thank you very much, Sherry. Thank you. It makes me want to go back to Florence. Me too. Us too. Gene, we've been trying to take us back 500 years to the age of Michelangelo, not counting being in a museum. Where would you go in Florence? Where would you take a visitor in Florence to feel the Florence of Michelangelo most vividly? I would take them to the church of Santa Maria Novella, which is right near the train station, just about a two-minute walk from the train station. And I would take them to the main altar and the chapel that's behind there. This is not done by Michelangelo. There's a series of frescoes done by Ghirlandaio. But this is where Michelangelo worked as a 13-year-old boy in his first artistic gig. He was hired by Ghirlandaio to mix plaster for this fresco work. And in there, you can look at the frescoes. You can see the pictures of Florence today because the paintings show... The men and women, men in their striped Romeo-type leotards and their Juliet-type dresses with their jewels on them. It shows the actually famous people of the time. You can picture young Michelangelo working in there, getting his first glimpse of what it would really be like to be a working artist. Michelangelo, who was born in Florence, could then take that cultural phenomenon of the Renaissance, spread it to Rome, throughout Italy and it eventually spread all over Europe. Professor Wallace, everybody looks at David and, and is impacted, inspired. When you look into the eyes of David, what do you see? Well, Rick, I think that's why we need to go to Florence again and look at it in person because we can't actually look into the eyes of David. We're always looking up to David. And I think why it continues to move us is because it's so awesome in its scale and its accomplishment that we don't actually have access to the eyes of David. It's always a world larger than ourselves and in some ways inspires us to feel like we're part of a world larger than ourselves. And so this is why I think even 500 years later, we can still be moved by seeing this figure, even though it's as familiar as it is from books. And we can be appreciative of that great generation, the generation of Michelangelo that helped bring us out of the Middle Ages and into the modern world. Who did more than anybody else to help raise the stature of artists and make art into something that's really modern and significant still 500 years later. Professor William Wallace, Gene Openshaw, Michelangelo Bonarroti, thank you all very much. Thank you. Grazie. Prego. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks for help today to the Radio Foundation in New York. There's more on the radio section of ricksteves.com, where Leslie and Rick chat about sightseeing the Habsburgs and Princess Diana and the sex lives of royals. Come back next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to Italy and beyond. On Rick's website, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Italy's top sites, and a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To prepare for your next Italian adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.